You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Hello, my name is Captain Sean Newman, and this is another FDNY Pro podcast. With me today is Battalion Chief Bob Ingram and Firefighter Joe Iovino, who are founding members of Hazmat Company One. Hi, Sean. How you doing? Let's get right to it. How did Hazmat Company One form? Was there one particular incident that caused the department to decide to make such a specialized unit? There was one incident that started the fire department in the uh, HAZMAT program, but there was a time frame of almost four years between that incident and the actual formation of HAZMAT Company 1. The incident was in 1980, an LPG tank truck leaking LPG gas on the George Washington Bridge shut down the bridge and created a traffic jam that lasted for about 12 hours and disrupted commerce probably for New Jersey, New York, parts of Pennsylvania, and probably up into Connecticut. The leak was from some of the valving on the uh, back of the tanker and was finally resolved by a couple of firefighters from the department who were aware of pipes and fittings and that there was a hardware store down on the streets below in the Bronx They ran down to the hardware store, picked up the fittings that they needed, and were able to come back up and put them onto the piping of the tanker and be able to control the leak and stop it. That led to the department realizing, and the city and the region, realizing how important it was to have a capable hazmat company in the city to be able to handle these incidents. They designated Rescue 4 in the borough of Queens, to be the company that would train for and respond to hazardous materials incidents. They were assigned a second piece, additional firefighters, and they handled that for about four years with the members of Rescue 4 going to training down at the National Fire Academy and other schools that were starting to become available throughout the country. In the end of 83, beginning of 84, the Queensboro president was becoming concerned that the heavy rescue company for the borough of Queens was going outside to the other four boroughs more frequently, leaving their citizens without a heavy rescue capability. There was the Queensboro president's pushing and political pressure that created or pushed for the formation of Hazmat Company One. It was also that same political pressure that uh, caused the location of Hazmat One to be in the borough of Queens. We're able to find quarters with 288, which was a single engine in a double house, and it was located right on the Long Island Expressway near the BQE and provided access to all five boroughs. Joe, how did you come to Hazmat One? When they started the company, they needed seven men riding in the firefighter positions, and I guess it was hard to fill all those positions, so they asked the local battalion to provide manpower. So I went through the training and they would detail me across the floor to hazmat, and I'd I'd fill in spots uh, over there. And then over the years, I just got used to working there. I was detailed out almost all the time, so I figured I might as well just, you know, go right into the the unit. I actually went into hazmat three years after they they had formed in 84. Chief Ingram, with your more than 30 years in hazmat, whether it's in the company or the battalion, what roles have you had in that time? Everything from... uh bottle washer to chief cook. I started out as a firefighter, one of the founding charter members of the company in 1984. 
Stayed there for about six years until I got promoted to a lieutenant and was put into uh, Brooklyn in the 3-5 Battalion. In 1992, the department asked me to come back and start developing the first hazardous materials training program for the department. We not only uh, helped write the curriculum, but we also trained a cadre of instructors and opened up four different training sites throughout the city so that we could start training all the members of the department in hazardous materials response competencies at the operations level. I got promoted shortly after that to captain and was assigned into South Queens until April of 1997 when the chief of training, Jack Fanning, asked me to come back to Hazmat Operations and start developing the Hazardous Materials Technician School. did that with a whole team of great people, and uh, I also had EMS officers working with us. It was uh, truly a joint operation between the fire and medical side. Really took off, not only trained our squads, rescue companies and the hazmat members in, in hazardous materials, but we started training outside the department also. 1997, we started training the ChemBio team for the Con Edison system under the then uh, Vice President Dick Morgan, who was one of the only Con Edison people I believe killed in 9-11. We worked with uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, we worked with the military, first training uh, exercises with the Marine Corps Seabirth Command in 1998. And uh, it was uh, really great. I moved laterally to Executive Office of Hazmat Operations under Jack Fanning, where we started to get involved nationally with uh, the Department of Defense and Justice, with the Interagency Board in trying to establish new research and development avenues, new standards development, and new urban interface with the military and hazardous materials environments tremendous opportunity for us to gain insight into the military research and development and equipment that they were using. In 2000, I was promoted to battalion chief and became the executive officer for special operations at headquarters, working under Chief Gansey and Chief Carruthers and Chief Nigro at the time, and stayed there for a year until 9-11, at which point uh, we responded from headquarters to the World Trade Center and uh, when Chief Fanning was killed uh, in the South Tower, uh, over the next week or two, I was transitioned to take over the command of the Hazmat Operations Office and rebuild the Hazmat Group. Our veteran members are well aware of the sacrifices that Hazmat made on 9-11, but for our younger members and for our wider audience, could you uh, touch on Hazmat uh, Company 1's response on September 11th. Well, Hazmat Company 1 was assigned on high-rise fires and responded in on, on that one almost immediately. They could see the uh, Twin Towers from the kitchen windows of the fire station. The uh, un unusual and unfortunate piece that occurred that day, Hazmat Company 1 was scheduled for medicals at BHS. So the regular on-duty crew had reported to the Bureau of Health Services for their medicals, and a replacement crew was on duty. They're the ones that responded in. But at the same time, on hearing the news at headquarters, the off-duty crew also responded. And uh, that was what drove up the, the number of members who were killed on 9-11. Uh, we lost basically two crews, almost 14 people. In addition, we lost the chief of hazmat, Jack Fanning. We were in the process of 
uh, training and trying out two new captains, Tom Moody and Pat Waters, and we had given them each a three-month detail to determine which one would be the best fit for the company. We lost both of them. Uh, and I think we only had one survivor of the on-duty company, and that was the resource firefighter who was placed uh, at his position in the apparatus waiting for information to look up and research. Um, I was on scene as part of Chief Gancy's staff uh, at the command post we established on West Street in the, at that time, down ramp into the parking garage under the World Financial Center. When Hazmat reported in the on-duty crew, I directed them into the uh, North Tower with detection equipment for radiation, chemical agents, and their four and five gas meters to make certain that there was nothing else on the plane and uh, be able to protect our members if there were. So it was, uh, it was a, a big decision that I think about often uh, because all of those members uh, did not come back out. But... Um, they were doing a job. We were training for this. It was part of our mission, uh, our dual mission between hazardous materials on the commercial side and those that could be used intentionally as a weapon. And uh, we, we were sending people to these schools to be able to do that detection capability to protect the other members who were doing the firefighting and the medical mission. Uh, it was a very long day. Yeah. So I, dr I drove in from home back to the firehouse and uh, guys came in from home to ride they jumped on the second piece of the squad because they, they left their second piece back and by the time I got there to the World Trade Center the both of them were both of the buildings were down and then they spent the whole day just uh, looking for survivors you know we did have the uh, members who responded in from operations and uh, from home later on I had them take equipment out, detection equipment, and had them circle the site around the uh, damaged buildings as well, make sure that there was no other materials there, no radioactive materials, no chemicals that we could detect. There's a tremendous amount in the buildings that uh, came down, a lot of, lot of uh, different aspects you never would consider. You know, the Secret Service vehicles that were stored in the bottom, the DEA drug cache that was opened up on the corner of the building on the third floor, a lot, a lot of different uh, pieces. The members never stopped, uh, both on our medical side in the HazTac and on the fire side. It was uh, a tremendous, tremendous effort. What is required to make an FDNY hazmat specialist? There's a lot more schools that we do go to to stay in the specialist rank in, in hazmat. In the uh, mid to late 90s, dealing with the Department of Defense. We went to the Chemical Agent School when it still belonged to the Department of Defense. We went to the Radiation School out in Nevada. We went to the Biological Agent School in Dugway, Utah. We went to the Explosive School in New Mexico. We've taken a lot of individual training programs and courses through some of the manufacturers of the technology equipment that uh, provides us with a high-end spectroscopy type equipment to identify materials. We've done a lot of training with the military. Our members have gone uh, internationally to other countries to work with those military forces and emergency responders to bring back a better uh, idea of how we're going to respond and how it will impact our policies and procedures and how we can work with them to adapt. So the training uh, is ongoing. We run initial training for everyone that uh, is assigned to one of these companies and we conduct annual refresher training 
for every one of those individuals regularly. So it's, um, it is a lot of schooling. Chief, our focus, of course, is HAZMAT 1, but what other units are trained in HAZMAT currently in the FDNY in both fire and uh, EMS operations? There's roughly 130 companies now within the FDNY that are trained in hazardous materials, WMD response capabilities above the operations level. We have our CPC ladder companies, of which we started the first 10 of them in 1996 and 97, along with five ALS and BLS ambulance units, providing them with a technician-level training with a focus on medical countermeasures, medical intervention. We've trained the seven squad companies, the five rescue companies, all to the technician level. We have our four technician engine companies, that we trained after 9-11, and we really ramped up a lot of other mission-specific capabilities with our additional chemical protective clothing ladder companies, our decontamination engines, our SOC support ladders, uh, and battalion chiefs that form decontamination task forces. We have mobile decontamination shower units in all five boroughs, in addition to deployable decontamination tent capabilities. Our medical side has uh, increased the number of ALS and BLS units that are trained to the hazardous material technician with medical countermeasures. I believe the count is either 35 or 39 right now. And I believe 10 of those are also rescue tech units that train with the rescue companies for confined space medical countermeasures to work jointly with our rescue technicians. One big capability that we've also been able to add through the support of the department is a full-time hazmat battalion. When we first started, there was a chief of hazmat, and they worked Monday through Friday. And we did not have full-time response supervisory capability until after 9-11. And we're able to now provide 24-hour supervision. The interesting part about our medical components, our um, HAZTAC ambulance command, those units on medical calls respond under the medical branch, but when they're assigned to a hazmat mission, they respond to the and report under the hazmat command branch. Uh, it's been a, a great working relationship between our fire companies who can go in and protective uh, ensembles to remove and rescue individuals who may be in a uh, IDLH environment and bring them out to medical personnel who can triage them, provide quick medical countermeasures, have them decontaminated by our task forces, and then transported. So the robust capabilities we've developed over the years are really very good. Could you touch on some memorable incidents you've had during your career? The responses that we go to are not routine. They're not the same type of building, the same type of call that you would go to in a fire company. They're always different. They're always unusual. We don't have a lot of tactics and procedures already set up and written for all of these types of calls. So you have to be able to think on your feet, assess the scene, assess the incident uh, characteristics, and be able to put together uh, an action plan on how you're going to address the, the call. Uh, one of the early ones that I uh, went on was the uh, LaGuardia 5050 crash, and we were one of the first units on scene, and three of our members were uh, actually in the water and in the plane uh, working with the uh, people that were still trapped in their seats. We got called to a fire in a research lab, and when we arrived, 
went up to the lab floor where we were met by the uh, scientist who was working in that lab, and we asked him what they needed us for. And he told us the fire was in an incubator inside the lab. And we looked at him and said, well, is the fire out? And he told us, yes. So we said, well, what do you need us for? And he told us that he wanted us to go in and see if anything had gotten out of the incubator. So I just looked at him and I thought maybe what are we looking for? Some mutated spider that uh, is now on the walls waiting to pounce on us? Uh, that, that was the kind of interesting calls that uh, always, always kept my, uh, my interest going. We've had fires in uh, dumps, dealing with many unknowns. I've uh, been to barge explosions, barge fires. We've been to high-rise fires right from the get-go. Hazmat Company 1, we came in to service in 84. We came in with 60-minute cylinders when the rest of the department was still on 30 minutes. So we were used in a lot of high-rise where you needed to either carry two cylinders or be able to operate with the larger one. We got special called outside the city. Uh, one in particular that I was called out on was the construction collapse of the Lambiance Plaza in Bridgeport, Connecticut, because we had the first thermal imaging camera in the department as well as acoustic uh, equipment so that we could work in the rubble and try to uh, find individuals that may have been trapped and still alive. In 1986, I believe, we responded to a five-story walk-up up in the Harlem area where a uh, former bomb maker for the uh, FALN was making new chemical bombs. And we had to go up and take the chemicals apart and bring them down to the street and neutralize them. So the, the variety of calls has always been just uh, interesting. Yeah, we had a number of uh, plane crashes. You mentioned 50-50. We got a run to go to uh, JFK for a, uh, the plane was on fire, and uh, the crew had already jumped out the windows, and it was on fire up in the front somewhere, and we were there all day fighting this fire. I was part of the team that drilled into the tanks to, to suck the jet fuel out of the tanks. It took a long time to drill through that wing, you know. It's like titanium and aluminum, you know. These are the kind of, you get these runs, and, and, and you're out all day. That's the kind of runs that you would get. It wouldn't be like a five-minute, you put the fire out, and you get back to the firehouse, you know. Could you touch on your analysis from the point a run comes in um, and how you identify the substance or learn about its characteristics um, before before you get to the scene? A lot of times, you know, you get the ticket and it says it's, it says it's a gas fire or a gas leak. And you're thinking, well, I have a gas leak. Maybe it's natural gas. Maybe somebody punctured a line. But it's a gasoline leak. A lot of times it just it, it comes across as one thing and it's something else. A lot of times as you're rolling towards the scene, you're looking up the chemical that they initially told you that it was, and you're getting all the properties of it. You know, you're going across the computer, or you're going across your smartphone, you're investigating what you have, and then you, you, sh you show up and it's something else. It's kind of an interesting job. You're always like an investigator, and you're always like changing tactics as you go along, as, as the information comes in. We've always made it a point where the officer would contact the battalion chief on scene as well. So as Joe says, in addition to the information you get on a teleprinter, we're usually in contact. Uh, and nowadays it's usually the battalion chief on duty who's calling the battalion chief on scene to get more detailed information that we may have received on the, on the uh, ticket. And then when you're continually assessing the scene, looking for site characteristics, you're looking for container shapes and sizes, markings and colors on placards or labels, building signs, you're looking for shipping papers or data sheets, you're constantly gathering new information. And I used to 
particularly in the in the uh, terrorism training after 9/11 and some of the advanced hazmat training as a chief in charge I would make a point of going into every new technician class and telling them you got 30 minutes to ask me any question you want and they would ask me a lot of questions and I and I would tell them right up front the question you ask if I know the answer I'll tell you right now and that's how we're going to handle it if I don't know the answer I'm going to make one up right now because it probably means that we don't have a policy or procedure for it already. And that's how we developed a lot of tactics and procedures over the years. We would come across a new incident that we hadn't dealt with before or a new product. And we would a lot of times create the policy right then and there in the street. And then uh, try it out a couple more times and write it up. I can remember one unusual one that over the years I've had about six or seven times. Jewelry store. Something they did in the jewelry store drove everybody, the customers and employees, out of the stores. And it usually ended up being an old safe that was about eh, 80, 100 years old. I guess one of the methods that safe crackers would use to break into the safe would be to drill around the tumblers and take the tumblers out. So the safe manufacturers used to put a glass vial of a uh, extremely noxious or toxic material inside the vial behind the tumbler so that if they went through with the drill bit, it would break the vial and drive them out of the building. A lot of them ended up being a, a material called chloropicrin, which uh, was actually used as a chemical agent in World War I. So pretty, pretty noxious materials. If I can project to uh, 2017 from, uh, from 2001, um, how has hazmat operations changed in that time? It's a lot larger. It's actually with uh, Deputy Chief Nick Del Rey taking over. It's actually become a division with the uh, number of personnel being trained at the uh, technician or higher level, a mission-specific level, over 3,000, probably close to 3,400 receiving initial training and uh, refresher training. The amount of research and development that they do for a lot of the high-end equipment and personal uh, protective uh, technologies and ensembles. We have a, a meter group now where prior to 9-11 we had one light duty member handling our meter calibration. We now have probably between 10 and 15,000 detection devices that have to be calibrated and maintained on a regular basis. We deliver terrorism awareness to new lieutenants, new captains, and uh, when we can, new battalion chiefs. We have the CPC training that is ongoing. We've done decon engine, the, the support ladders, the technician schools. Uh, we continue to work a lot with the Department of Defense, still with the Marine Corps CBRF, but also now with a lot of the National Guard Bureau units that are involved in the Seaburn uh, response arena. Done a lot of work um, nationally with the International Association of Firefighters and Fire Chiefs, helping to share the information that we've learned and continue to seek with the uh, fire service across the country and, and internationally. The uh, Hazmat Battalion, as I mentioned earlier, has really been a great bonus for us. Being able to supervise the companies, conduct uh, multi-unit drills or individual company drills, uh, dealing with the hazmat issues and uh, just providing a, uh, a good subject matter person with experience to the incident commander when it comes to a hazardous materials incident. I think that's probably one of our best decisions, putting in that full-time supervisory role.
Could you touch on some of the WMD policy level work you do out of the Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness? A lot of the outside city work that we started was actually before 9-11 and started by Chief Fanning. When 9-11 uh, occurred and I took over command of the HAZMAT, I was performing still those out-of-the-city committee meetings, uh, working groups. So for several years, probably from about 2005 to about 2007, I was able to present the program to the department to take my job and split it in two. One of them becoming more a government representative to continue our access to the information and technologies that were becoming available through better relations with the military and the federal government and Homeland Security at that time. Over the last 10 years, I've probably been on the road about 20 to 25 weeks a year meetings with the Department of Defense, with the Department of Justice, uh, working the um, security clearance issues, some of the classified briefings, uh, and been the representative for the fire department to the International Association of Fire Chiefs Hazmat Committee. I've worked on standards for the National Institute of Standard Technology, for the Department of Justice, for PPE, for law enforcement offices. I've worked internationally in Britain, Brazil, and Israel presenting on some of the procedures and strategies that we were starting to develop and deploy. Been able to observe testing uh, through the Department of Homeland Security with various chemical materials and radiological materials to help us bring that information back and, and better adapt our current policies and procedures to provide better protection for our members. So it's it's been a um, pretty wild ride, one that I, I thoroughly enjoyed, although being away and out of town that much was uh, trying at times, but uh, very, very challenging and very interesting. Chief, to touch on the uh, counterterrorism mission, um, has the emergence of ISIS in 2014 up until now changed the WMD threat? I don't think it's changed the threat itself, but I think it has changed the probability that something will happen. Some of the breakdown of some of the nation states are um, allowing access to groups like ISIS. To, when they come in and take over a town, they get access to radiological materials uh, as well as funding in banks to be able to provide further funding to deliver materials. And then, of course, you know, we see a little bit of a return to nation-state issues now with North Korea and the buildup of their nuclear arsenal, and it's a concern. So I think that we, again, have to maintain our capabilities in the Seaburn arena, the chem, bio, rad, and nuke, uh, to be able to make sure that our people are safe and can go home every day. All right, I think we're close to concluding. Any parting shots? It's been interesting. It's uh, It's... Good to remember a lot of what we've accomplished, uh, to be able to bring that back out to the members of the department, both on the fire and the medical side, that uh, this has not been a capability that was built up overnight. This is something that has been ongoing for you know, 37 years now, and we continually reassess the risks and the threats that we have to address, and we try to make sure that the response capabilities we've developed are appropriate still need to continue to do a lot of collaboration with our intel partners and not only the intel group uh, at the center uh, who deal with our federal 
uh, intel agency partners on a regular basis to see what the new threats are, but also the, the research and development people in the federal government that we've partnered with. And we can partner with the Department of Defense, who has a much bigger R&D budget than we do, and uh, we can help transition th those dollars into uh, technologies that are beneficial for both the military personnel and our emergency responders. So I think we're going to continue that. Chief Ingram, Firefighter Iovino, thank you very much for your time and insights. Thank you, Captain Newman. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.